millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is creative director and writer of some of the most memorable and influential independent games of recent years, including Bastion, Transistor, and most recently the smash hit Hades, which topped many of 2021's best games of the year lists. In the 90s, he co-founded Arcadia, a website dedicated to films and video games, which led to an internship at GameSpot, one of the largest websites specialising in video game coverage anywhere in the world, and of which he eventually became editor-in-chief. After leaving journalism for the world of game development, he worked on the Command & Conquer series, then, in 2010, joined Supergiant Games as creative director. Our goal is for each game we make to be good enough and idiosyncratic enough so that it hits someone at the right place and the right time to become their favourite, he once said. Welcome, Greg Kasavin. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show, Simon. Yeah, thanks so much. Did I say your surname correct there, by the way? I've only ever seen it written down. Oh, I say, you know, um, my my mind barely process is different. I say it Kasavin, Kasavin. but anyway is fine. Well, um, I wondered if you could just start by telling me a 
bit about your well your wikipedia says that you were born in moscow is that is that correct and if so could you tell me about that yes that is indeed correct um i was about two and a half years old when my family immigrated to the united states so i have no real uh, memory of it sure but so so i am told you know by by my by my parents so we settled in the San Francisco Bay Area, where we still kind of jumped around quite a bit as I was growing up. But Yeah, so what was the the reason for those movements? Um, the reason for those movements and my parents wanting to ensure a, a kind of brighter future for my older brother and me. My, uh, my brother is three and a half years or so older than I am. So my parents kind of you know, this is around 1980 or so, and my parents kind of saw some of the writing on the wall with where things were headed in what was the Soviet Union at the time. Although they themselves, I think, didn't uh, necessarily have a negative experience there, I think they were concerned with where where some things were going um, and, and felt that their their children would have a brighter opportunity here. I think the irony for them is, you know, my mother is a neurologist and my father is is a an engineer. They're they're both now retired, but I think they they expected that their their children, you know, might follow in their footsteps. But we both ended up doing, you know, pretty things that are pretty far afield of of the kind of uh, things that they did. So I think that led to some that led to some definitely some kind of tension uh, growing up. But but I think it it's all it's all ended. Uh, well, and they, uh, you know, I think in hindsight they appreciate the, the irony of it, as as do we all. That indeed, you know, we did have uh, the land of opportunity turned out to offer opportunity, just not quite in the way that they expected. So, as someone who works on stories for a living, I I do appreciate uh, that the story for them took this sort of unexpected twist. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose essentially they they got what they were hoping for, right? And in, in that you were able to pursue some opportunities that probably wouldn't have been there had you remained in the Soviet Union as it was then. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely I I think that's how it worked worked out where, you know, when I first started at, at you mentioned my GameSpot internship, you know, they were they were quite quite happy for me because I was getting I was I'd been playing video games since I was a little kid, since my earliest memories. So they were pleased to see that I was at least doing kind of something productive for it and and starting to got a job based on it. Wasn't just like slacking off uh, playing games. Yeah. But um, I distinctly remember, um, I think it was my father asking like, well, th- this is great, but what are you going to be doing in five years from now? And I remember thinking, you know, there, there's no reason, there's no reason this has to be temporary. Like this can be... Um, a career and not just not just a short-term job and sure enough I ended up you know working at GameSpot for for more than 10 years um so my parents definitely came around on it some years into it as as they saw that it was kind of at least for me it was something that I I, I cared a lot about and you know seemed seemed viable enough and they were extremely supportive uh, when I wanted to make that switch into game development and I I couldn't have I couldn't have done that without their without their help and support it was like the first time i had to you know essentially mooch money off of my parents since i was since i was a teenager yeah mm. so i i yeah. feel extremely fortunate that they were so uh, supportive of me i couldn't have done any of this super giant stuff um if not for that mm, yeah absolutely and uh, you know how did they feel about introducing video games to 
to your and your brother's life when you arrived in in the states was that something that you really had to campaign for or were they just up for buying you something yeah um you know i i was probably like like i said i mean i was playing games from my earliest memory so i don't even really know exactly how they were introduced to me i'm sure having the older brother uh, helped um helped kind of expose me to some of them sooner than I might have been otherwise. And since my dad was an engineer and worked with computers and stuff like that, we had like a Apple IIc computer at home when I was growing up and I played some really kind of formative, extremely impactful games on that computer. But I tried to play everything I could get my hands on. I loved arcade games. I loved console games. You know, the first money I ever earned, I um, like through, it was like through like an art contest or something. I, oh, I right. won like a hundred dollars and, oh, and wow. spent it on a Nintendo entertainment system and stuff like that. So what did you have to draw for the art competition? So it was like, uh, it was something for, for Israel's 40th birthday at the time as a, as a nation. Um, cause we're, um, we're, we're Russian Jews, uh, by ethnicity, not to get into, all, all that, but many of the immigrants from the Soviet Union in in the Bay Area are of uh, Jewish ethnicity. Okay, how, how did that happen? I think because it was a country with a lot of anti-Semitism. No, but I uh, so so they left. I mean, I mean, how come the the sort of concentration, I suppose, in the Bay Area? Was there any reason for that? I, I I'm not even I'm not even entirely. I think that's just kind of how uh, immigration movements can happen. You follow in the footsteps of, of others. Before, you know, my, yeah, my grandmother yeah. came to join us here, or grandmother and grandfather at the time came to join us here, uh, stuff like that. So I think people follow their relatives and, you know, suddenly kind of pockets of, yeah. of ethnic groups emerge. Uh, San Francisco has always been interesting in that regard that it has its, like, different immigration pockets and districts and stuff like that. In the Richmond district, it was always a lot of like the former Soviet as well as um, as well as like Chinese uh, immigrants living there and stuff like that. So I grew up in that kind of area. Right. So you're one of the few so people who work in the tech industry who actually grew up in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. And that was extremely, um, you know, that's one of those things that's just a stroke of fate for me because uh, GameSpot, you know, where where I started working happened to be like a pretty short bus ride away from where I lived. And that was that was part of my impetus for even reaching out to them. Um, I'm like, hey, we're, you know, I work on a gaming website. You work on a gaming website. We're local. You want to want to meet up and talk and stuff like that. So if I if I lived somewhere else in the world, it's just none of that mm. would have happened yeah. and my life would have been completely different. So, so before you go to GameSpot, was, what was it that inspired you to set up this uh, Arcadia, the, the website dedicated to films and games? It, it was just that games were the thing i i always loved most um and i played them so much that there came a point where i felt like i needed to do something more more kind of productive with them to justify all the time i was spending and so i got to writing about them in high school the thing i really wanted to do always was was to make them but i struggled with that a lot uh whenever i tried to teach myself programming it just wouldn't it wouldn't connect with me. I would get really frustrated. Whereas I always um, enjoyed writing um, a lot, and and you know, reading gaming magazines and stuff growing up. It was one of those things I just wanted to see. I wanted to start doing it too. And so I I met like in the early days of of the internet. I met um, a friend on online. We started kind of review. We we made like a little fanzine. It was so long ago that this was actually like kind of printed on paper and mailed oh, to people. Um, yeah. So we had a little zine 
with like game reviews and stuff that we sent out to people. Um, and that, you know, led to my first like little freelance writing jobs. How did you, how did you advertise the fanzine? How did people hear about it? Uh, on the internet and little, little like, you know, message, message groups and stuff like that. So it's not, not too much, oh, amazing. you know, the form of it has, has certainly changed a lot over the years, but the idea of like, there were discussion forums where people talked about games, like that part has actually remained the same, you know, since the early nineties or so, which is the time period I'm talking about. It, basically that, that's how I ended up getting into it. Even though I wanted to make games, I realized that my, it felt like I was, I was just better equipped to write about them than to make them. Um, so I started uh, doing that and the time really flew by. It's like those 10 years at GameSpot went by seemingly in a flash. And it was one of those things where I just had that realization of if I don't try my hand at game development again soon, I might never get my chance. And, you know, I'm likely to fail fine, but if I I can always maybe come crawling back to this field, but I'm going to regret it if I don't at least try it. Um, so that's that's where yeah that's where I was at back when you were a, a teenager and thinking about how you might get into making games. Were you not tempted to go the artist route, especially having won the competition and all of that kind of thing? I actually never really considered that I could just be an artist for games. I never felt I was like that good um, as as an artist as much as I enjoyed it. Right. To me, the the art was just trying to like convey stuff that was in my head that I could convey in other ways in writing and. But the, yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned because I never even the thought never crossed my mind for whatever reason. So the the format of this podcast is I'm asking you to choose five video games that are going to go on your fictional games machine of your dreams. Um, could you tell us about your your first pick, which I think comes from 1997? Yes, I I decided well to as a preface, you know, it's so difficult to choose just five games, so I had to kind of constrain the theming of them somehow. Um, and I decided to focus on console games that originated from from some of the kind of iconic Japanese game developers and publishers uh, who have been with me through most of my life and I think uh, have created really inspiring works over the years. Though these games in particular aren't necessarily, not necessarily the most popular games from these studios, but ones that have really impacted me and I think just really stand the test of time. So, so the, that first game is from 1997, and it is Final Fantasy Tactics for the PlayStation, uh, published and developed uh, by Square Enix. Wonderful game. Yeah, thank you. I, I certainly agree. You know, I, I don't go back and play uh, my old favorite games very often. I'm content to just live with the memory of having played them before. But Final Fantasy Tactics is an exception where that's a game where every few years I do go back and replay it, and it's still great. It uses uh, 2D artwork primarily for all the characters and everything, and it has this incredibly detailed animation to it, despite having these kind of cute-looking characters. It has this wonderfully Shakespearean story that's nothing like what Final Fantasy does normally. 
Um, so the story was this huge surprise juxtaposed with this kind of cute appearance. And then the um, gameplay itself is is this kind of strategic, you know, define this sort of strategy RPG genre that did exist before, but I think it was kind of became one of the more famous works of that style. Um, and there's just, you know, many games since, um, including sequels to it, have provided a similar format, but nothing ever since has combined the the kind of mood and tone and storytelling and detail with the the kind of open-ended depth of play that Final Fantasy Tactics has provided. And then the the music and everything is is still incredible to this day. Yeah, incredible soundtrack. So I, I guess too, you know, for anyone who hasn't played it, the best way to describe it is probably as a descendant of chess, right? So you view the board from an isometric angle and it's as if your chess pieces... Uh, they will have classes as in chess, but you can, you know, you can switch between classes. So it's as if you could make your knight into a rook and retain some of the abilities for being a knight in very crude terms, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's right. With with just many more layers of, of complexity, for better or worse, than than in something like chess. It would be like if you're if you could switch your rook back to a knight and then, you know, import some of the knight's abilities back onto the rook. <laughs> and and then you know compose your entire your 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 entire side of the board uh to to your to your liking based on like you 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 create like a little small a small squad of characters and then some of the characters are you know major characters in the story and all all sorts of things like that and um it it just you know if not it's one of those games where as much as i enjoy play it just playing it if not for the story and the atmosphere um it, it certainly wouldn't have left the kind of permanent mark on me that it did. It, the story was just uh, in a in a word. It was shocking in in uh, in many uh, ways, and uh, how it had this kind of sweeping brother against brother kind of class warfare historic political drama premise um, that was very unusual for fantasy games that typically were just like save the world from the bad guy. That's that's it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was really. Uh... Uh, you know, a real surprise when that game came. I was I was quite young when it came out, but I remember. You know, it just wasn't as you say. It wasn't like other Final Fantasy games. It had a really different tone, uh, sort of like you say, quite Shakespearean. And and even though the the translation of the PlayStation version wasn't the best, and they tidied it up later, didn't they? But even in in its first sort of iteration, it was still pretty impactful. Yeah, because even though right, even though the translation had some, as you say, it it was rough in spots. You could still through the animation and and the context of what was happening, it it overcame whatever weaknesses there were in the translation. You you could still understand and infer what was happening there, and the the kind of the severity of the tone. Uh, still is shown through at least for me so yeah it left yeah. it left a really strong impression yeah. on me and i suppose in 1997 you're you're at a game spot by this point yes so, or or about to be can you tell me the story how did you go from you know running this independent fanzine and and then a website to to getting a, a job at you know the largest games website in the world well um as mentioned it, it started just as an internship right so it was um it was just because I, I did manage my, my meeting with like some of the with the folks who had founded the website. And um, one of them was uh, uh, in charge of the editorial department at the time. I kind of was was interested. It's like, hey, is there any kind of collaboration or anything like that that we could do? And they're kind of like, well, not really. But if you want to do some writing for us, let us know. And and at that and I was like, OK, we we had been doing the Arcadia thing for about a year at that point, And it was like 
more of a hobbyist thing. We were curious to see where it could go, but um, you know, in my case, it led to this opportunity to work for something that was clearly GameSpot was serious from the start. They had a team of like 30 people or something like that at the very beginning. And um, they they were ambitious. They were planning to be a real business around it and so on. Um, so for me, it was an exciting, and plus it was like, it was like a paid internship. So I, I could, it, it was just something that I decided to pursue. So were they, were they getting you to write at that time during the internship? What are you actually doing day to day? Yeah, I was, a, I, I was, a, um, I reviewed games. The very first game I, I reviewed for GameSpot was, and this will be, this will come back into play a little bit later in this conversation, but was Kingsfield, oh. uh, the PlayStation role-playing game from, from software, the creators of, uh, you, you know, uh, Elden Ring and, and so forth. So Elden Ring and all those games still kind of have their roots in, this uh, rather crude by today's standards game called Kingsfield. So yeah, I was reviewing a lot of games for GameSpot from the beginning. That's that was primarily what I was That's doing. That's a hell of a game to get uh, to 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 get as your first commission. Yeah. Do you remember what you what you thought of Kingsfield at the time? You know, it was one of those games where like it was really rough around the edges but had a lot of compelling stuff in there too. It, it was like one of those games where I I gave it, you know, it was like solid, but not amazing at the time, that sort of thing. Like the awkward, you know, baby steps of fully 3D gaming. Um, I was someone who, having played and enjoyed so many 2D games, I was I was very like reluctant about the switch to 3D, the sort of forced switch to 3D. So games like Kingsfield, it certainly wasn't superior to something like, say, like a Chrono Trigger from just a couple right. of years prior. Mm, yeah, but it was interesting, um, and and there were other you know computer games at the time that were in that format, like uh, Ultima Underworld and and stuff like that. So I was in pretty familiar territory with it. No, yeah, so I remember it as a as a very interesting game, but not not one that like you know it, it's not on this list over Final Fantasy Tactics or something mm. like that. What was the um, atmosphere like? I wonder working at Gamespot at that time. L- like you say, it was a ambitious young company they if i remember correctly they had the url videogames.com i don't know if they've still got that but it redirected didn't it to GameSpot? so that gives you a good sense of how high they were aiming what was the process like you know this is still relatively in the early days of of journalism uh, games journalism so did you was your copy checked a lot or or were you just uploading it straight away oh no i loved it because i i was always i i always felt like i was a a stickler about trying to write about games to a certain standard um, was was really important to me, and and I and I felt like I had found sort of not just kindred spirits in that at GameSpot, but but uh, people I could just really look up to and learn from. I loved how serious they were about kind of editorial rigor and copy. You know, they employed copy editors uh, from the start and making sure that there was kind of professional layers of editing uh, over any piece that was published. They had like a defined, you know, publishing schedule on this. One of their things at the time was like, we're going to publish content like every single day. I, we didn't do weekends to start with. That was like, came, came quite a bit later. But the idea that, you know, you could have more stuff about video games every single day was like pretty revolutionary uh, at the time <laughs> when 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 the convention was like a monthly magazine, right? That released in, yeah, right. you know, sent in the mail or bu- purchased from a newsstand. Yeah, it's so funny. Like any young journalists who have, you know, writing for the internet now will 
uh, will find that amusing. I'm sure that, like, you know, one piece a day was seen as a, yeah. you know, a high work rate, but it, but it was, wasn't it? So. Yeah, or I think it was multiple pieces, even even from the start. Um, but it was like one big review a day, for example. Okay. This this sound this will sound particularly absurd. Their ambition was to review everything, every game that came out, every co- computer game, every video game. And that today, that's that's like literally impossible if you factor Steam and stuff, mobile games yeah. and all platforms. And yeah, Steam and mobile and so on. Like, there's just too many to count. But back then, it was it was still a tall order. But there was like a finite number of games <laughs> being uh, being published. Mm. So so that was like yeah, felt like a highly ambitious aspect of what Gamespot was trying to do. And I I was kind of very excited about it and. And learned a ton from from the people who were there, who were far more experienced than I was um, in that field. Was it a very um, a very large? You know, team? the editorial team was. I mentioned it was like close to thirty. The thirty people was like all told. Um, so uh, including engineers and uh, graphic designers, there was like a at least one person in sales and so on, just trying to again like make it a business. Um, the editorial team was, you know, a. a a decent portion of that, probably close to, probably not 10 people, but close, eight eight people or something uh, like that. That's Yeah, yeah. sizable. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. just having a sizable editorial team from the start um, showed they were they were serious. And then, um, yeah, one of the co-founders was uh, came from an editorial background and they, they were just very intent on being like a, a kind of a authoritative, uh, d- dependable voice in like game recommendation uh-huh. from the beginning and mm-hmm. that that spoke to me a lot now we come to you your second choice now which was 2002 what were you doing at, at the time when this game came out and uh, can you can you tell us all about it yes I'll, I'll mention the game first it is the legend of zelda the wind waker um for the gamecube published originally i think right at the end of 2002 It was a bit controversial at the time in that it it has this visual style that was a huge departure from what this kind of beloved series had been doing at that time. It, it's this uh, a very sort of uh, cartoon-like style, and there was concern as like, oh, it's just it's too childlike, it's not serious enough, or something like that. But really, what it was uh, was a timeless style. It is even arguably more than something like Breath of the Wild um, in more recent years has been hailed as this kind of instant classic. But but one could argue that w- Wind Waker's style 
is is just will hold up even better over time because it's just certainly compared to twilight princess or something like that you know that yeah. cartoonish style does does not age in the same way yeah as, as traditional 3d graphics yeah so so i have always enjoyed zelda games but to me they're not i'm not like it's not necessarily at the top of my list of like favorite game series or anything but wind waker just just really stood out to me um both in its style and also just the kind of open-endedness of the play because it has all these kind of you know boat you you traverse the world by boat so it has all this kind of sailing stuff in it that was really had this magical feeling to it in fact it's it's mainly water isn't it you're exploring an archipelago of small islands and then most of the time is spent sailing right yeah and there's a great um what they do with that sort of watery world how they pay that off in the story i thought was just wonderfully done um and and again really stuck with me and significantly it's it's one of the only uh my uh, my wife you know does does not care about games <laughs> to the extent that i do she's not into them but wind waker is one of those games that even to her it was just like extremely captivating uh, uh, from the start and 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 we she was just kind of mesmerized by it and wanted to see where where the story went and and all this kind of stuff so i have that kind of personal memory of it as well but really just it felt like it was really ahead of its time in the quality of its presentation and and in the sense of like exploration and everything and i haven't really similar to final fantasy tactics other games have sort of gone for similar things but i've never really played anything that felt that way again and and the presentation really has a timeless quality yeah it's funny the things that sort of people criticize the game for at the time other things that make it notable and memorable today, like other Zeldas can slightly blend into one another, I think, whereas right. this has such a memorable, you know, whether you fully enjoyed it or not, it you will remember it, won't you? Uh, certainly that is, I, I, I feel that way. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was still a very well-regarded game, even at the oh, time. Sure. It was just, mm. it was just, you know, compared to Ocarina of Time, which was, I think, widely considered kind of the greatest game it was a popular choice along with like Half-Life and things like that as the greatest game ever made. So it, it loomed in the, it was in this shadow of, of like such a, such a revolutionary game. But yeah, to me personally, I enjoyed Wind Waker a lot more than Ocarina of Time, which to me was more of like in, in that, more in that kind of awkward phase of 3D where I was like, ah, I kind of, this is really cool, but I miss aspects of the 2D Zelda games and stuff like that. Whereas Wind Waker, I was, uh, fully enamored with it and loved the loved the sailing the the open seas the 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 kind of sense of mystery in that game and and it also has one of the one of my all-time favorite um final like climactic sequences like the final confrontation in that game when i think of like outstanding like spectacular finales to video games wind waker is right up there mm, can you just just can you describe that? Well, it's the it's the battle. You, you know, you you end up facing Ganon or Ganondorf in pretty much every Zelda game. But the particular portrayal of Ganondorf in Wind Waker was so he was just such a compelling character in his design and in his kind of in his melancholy. They created this character that wasn't just wasn't just a jerk villain. He he was he had this painful longing and this nostalgia. He wanted things to be different. And it was just one of those things where I, I just didn't expect a depth of character there. Right. Um, And then the fight itself is like a, it's like a two on one 
battle where he's this kind of spectacular swordsman with you know wielding two blades and you you've learned this one move that you've been using throughout the game where you kind of roll around behind an enemy and slice them in the back where they can't uh, uh, hit you uh-huh. but but Ganondorf is so badass that he kind of blocks behind him with both of his swords so he can counterattack your one move that's carried you through the game and I remember thinking that's like it's so cool he's that powerful he even knows He's got my number. He he knows my tricks. <laughs> so it just felt like a really um, just just a amazing showdown against him. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the characterization because the Zelda series, I think, is you know it's been described before like a, a sort of old myth in that the the story is always basically the same <laughs> from each game, and, that, and what changes is the you know the way in which the game design is arranged or the mechanics and okay you know you link might get a new ability or whatever but the actual sort of fact of the plot sort of is fairly immovable and um yes it's unusual to get uh those complicating characterizations i suppose yeah in that series i also love that wind waker kind of spoke to this aspect that you're referring to where you as you learn more about the world you learn that there's this that there's this hit it it felt in the end, it felt self-aware in a really good way, uh, where you learn about, yeah, you have this, because it, it portrayed the world in this different way in this kind of watery archipelago. And it's like, oh, that's different. That's not usually how these games are. And and then and then even that ended up kind of tying together in a really thoughtful mm, yeah. way, I, I thought. So yeah, I, I just really um, enjoyed the story. It was funny and charming um, and, and dramatic and just hit all the right notes for me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So you're you've gone from being an intern to being employed at GameSpot. And at what point do you advance to become editor in chief of of the website? Well, so um, there was a whole kind of dot com crash in the early two thousands. There were tons of these web based businesses, and they started to uh, rapidly uh, die out. Uh, GameSpot, of course, did not die out, but it went through its own uh, kind of growing pains and challenges. It went through uh, an acquisition by a company called CNET, which had its own big gaming website at the time called Game Center. A game Center was actually uh, eliminated with uh, game, game Spot being kept. So that was a, right. a scary moment. But as, yeah. a, you know, as a team, we went through layoffs and consolidation and stuff like that. And I, you know, I remember feeling like it was a, 
there there's the there's the kind of recurring gag in the movie Empire Strikes Back where Darth Vader keeps choking out different uh captains on on the star destroyers and and new ones keep getting battlefield promotions so I felt like you know I I got like a battlefield promotion um at the time uh, when some of my predecessors were were no longer not literally choked out I hope they were not literally <laughs> choked out but they but you know, it wasn't the most it wasn't the most uh, ceremonious of of uh, promotions, but it was a promotion nonetheless uh, and a big opportunity. The other really weird this is like extremely strange to think back on because it like in 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 context. But there was like a big split between computer games and video games at the time. You mentioned, um, uh, you know, GameSpot owned VideoGames.com, and they, they were two separate websites, GameSpot and VideoGames.com, and they even had their own. Uh, separate editorial departments. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. Yeah, and and the idea of that split in hindsight, you know, it doesn't really make much sense. And even back then, it it was making less and less sense. So one of the things that happened internally was that we did it, like we merged those teams, and and I um and I was uh, executive editor of of both teams at that point. Um, so that was a big. I mean, it was a really difficult time, but it was my sort of sink or swim yeah. moment, I guess, where I had to like le- took on leadership responsibilities over the team at that point. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think anyone who has worked in journalism, not just video games, but but across the board over the last twenty five years, has experienced some of that. You know, it's been a recurring theme, hasn't it? Layoffs, and yeah. some people remain and get promoted, and then. Uh, have have to decide, you know, how they're going to deal with that. But it is can be psychologically quite difficult, can't it? I suppose uh, to assume that responsibility and not quite know if you're still going to be there in six months yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And it's part of it is that sense that other people are now depending on you. Your decisions may cause other people to lose Man. their jobs and livelihoods and may ruin this whole thing actually that that I've already been working at you know for for a number of years and learned from these these people who I really looked up to and now it was my turn to carry their what what I felt were their standards and my own standards carry those standards forward um so it was I was in my early 20s at the time um I had just I had just finished college uh, for four, my four-year degree, uh, I, I majored in English. So I was I was at GameSpot like part-time through most of my college. But now that I was done, I I had a full-time job, but this like big burden of responsibility there as well. That I was I was more than you know I felt very motivated to try and of course yeah make the most of it. Um and and was working with a great, I mean so many of my colleagues were were. They were so great, so it wasn't like I knew that they would be great with or without me. But we had the big challenge of like making us one team and and moving away from this idea of like a split between computer games and video games. And and so maybe I was probably I mean I could see why maybe in hindsight that they would have chosen me because I was someone who like never really you know I I always. You know, I would go from playing StarCraft to playing Kingsfield or whatever. Like, I never had a, I never favored computer games over console games or one or the other. I liked them all, so um, it made sense, I guess, that they would want someone who who had that mindset to. Yeah, it is funny looking back to think that you know the people could be so entrenched, couldn't they? I mean, maybe there are still pockets like that on the internet, but that's really not how it is anymore. Like, it's 
people are much more platform agnostic once they get past the age of 12, I hope, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I always I always understood it uh, in the sense that there's always that kind of cost issue and access issue. So if you, if you have a computer at home and you don't have consoles or you have a Xbox at home, you don't have a PlayStation, it's like that's that's where people can end up being kind of territorial over time or just they don't have the... Right. They don't know what what they've missed and right. stuff like that, and that can lead to... That's so, interesting. So you're saying it's like coming out of a feeling of envy and also maybe being left out. Like if, oh, like I've got a PlayStation, but someone over there with a PC says that this new game, Half-Life 2, is the greatest ever, so I'm going to be... I'm going to attack them on the internet, Well, basically. that I, I do think people can take on that kind of team mentality. You know, I'm team PlayStation, I'm team Xbox, I'm team Nintendo. Like, that's that's kind of as old as, mm. as video games, right? Back in the 90s, it was you know, the Sega Genesis versus the Super Nintendo and those kind of rivalries between the major console platforms have have always existed and and continue to exist to some extent to this day. But I do think that, you know, with something like Steam, computers became ubiquitous at a certain point. It wasn't always the case that everybody had like a gaming-capable PC. They still don't, uh, of course, um, but it's a little bit more accessible to people now and there are so many games on steam that have like a low barrier to entry through cost or system requirements that it's just easier to get into computer games uh-huh. now than than maybe it was in the 90s where um you know the high-end uh, computer games in the 90s you had to do weird stuff to even get them to run uh in a lot of cases like configure your uh, whatever I, yeah. I don't want to and as well as I'm, I'm already dating myself a lot but at, here, at that but, time as well there was a real tech arms race wasn't there where every game had to be at the very like you know top end of what technology on a pc could do whereas now you know, even looking at your your own games they they you know they will run on computers from you know that are seven or eight years old comfortably right yeah absolutely i mean you still have the occasional you know cyberpunk 2027 type game that that is meant to kind of be be a big kind of technical mm. showcase of what your PC can do but yeah many i i think the average uh computer game player necess- isn't necessarily like no way upgrading yeah. their graphics mm. card every 2 years as was the case uh in in the like in the early 2000s or something like that when when that stuff was definitely booming well i mean talking about technical showcases your next choice was that for the for the Xbox, I believe. Can you tell us about it? Yes. This is admittedly the most sort of fringe pick on this list, but it, it's a game that's near and dear to my heart, and it is called Panzer Dragoon Orta from 2002. Uh, it came out on the original Xbox, and it's published and developed by Sega.
Sega, of course, used to be a major console developer with with the Genesis um, and stuff like that, and then and then the Dreamcast. But this is after Sega got out of the hardware game and became like a software only company, and and they developed this this game exclusively uh, for the Xbox. Part of a not exactly a long running series, but part of a series of so called rail shooters. These are games where you kind of fly in a general direction without control over it and your and the gameplay involves kind of controlling and aiming reticle and shooting stuff down so it's a pretty simple game format but uh panzer dragon orta uses this format to weave this kind of really beautiful story in this mythical feeling quasi fantasy science fiction world and it's funny they you know the recently the um the avatar movie sequel has has been you know, all the rage and breaking box office records once again. But a lot of the aesthetic in the Avatar films, when there's like a weird dragon thing flying around through floating islands, whenever I see that stuff in in those movies, it just brings Panzer Dragoon Orta to mind. And I, I wonder if, if it even could have been an influence. There's such a strong right, yeah. visual similarity there to me. Interesting, yeah. To me, it's, uh, again, it, it kind of a visually very, very beautiful game that still holds up to this day but it was uh the the kind of tone and the atmosphere and the music similar to final fantasy tactics that really stuck with me it has this kind of pathos to it that was that was really surprising to me and very moving where you know you you play as this character who's who's basically a a prisoner almost like a witch or something like that she's She's been put away in this tower, and it's this society that they, they have this myth that a dragon is going to destroy them one day, and so they hate her. And and But then this dragon shows up, and it rescues her, and it's the very first level. Um, and, and so the whole like society all around you is just desperately trying to kill you because they fear you as this kind of doom-bringing agent of destruction. Yeah. But you're just this girl trying not to be shot down by these guys. Yeah. And so you're 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 doing what you would naturally do. You're fighting back, and it, and it was like, yeah, the the first level of this game is one of my all time favorite. The first level is kind of a Venny game because you end up fighting this like giant floating fortress battleship, and you hear all the noble you know crewmen desperately trying to bring this dragon down, and they're firing all their weapons, you know, launch the torpedoes, all this kind of stuff, but nothing they're doing is working, and you're picking their ship apart, and it's falling to pieces, and the main engines are down, and you know the captain tells the crew they're going down and all this stuff so it's like it's the game that really acutely like made me empathize for the things that i was fighting when most games they don't want you to think about it they they want you to kill kind of without question and so to me it made this game really uh, resonate i think the simplicity of how it plays is part of the reason it holds up so well uh, still. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's like a, I hadn't really thought of it like, like this before, but it's sort of like a, a parable almost, the, where the, the people fear something so much that their actions cause the thing that they fear to, yeah. to actualize, right? Yeah, and it and it delivered this just, you know, through the, the context of the play, oh. through being able to overhear these different characters that are trying that are trying to kill you. And and so I, I just loved the the complexity baked into that premise. Yeah. Yeah, it tells this whole sweeping story. It has this again, just this wonderful soundtrack. The, the the music being fantastic is like I think a recurring theme through all of the games I picked, but I, I still, you know, 
listen to the music from time to time, even yeah. even to this day. It's difficult to remember how scandalous it was that Sega, who had only just finished, you know, producing the Dreamcast console, you know, was now making a game for the Xbox. It was such a big deal, wasn't it, at that time? Yeah, it was. Uh, scandalous is a good word for it. It's it's part of the again, like part of the reason I thought of it um, for this list is that just as a little historical footnote, it was very. It was very significant, the idea that, you know, here's here's Sega, a company that used to be um, at the top of things as like a hardware, you know, on the level of like a Nintendo as a hardware manufacturer and software manufacturer. Uh, and now, you know, they're making games for an American company like Microsoft. From Microsoft, of all people. Yeah. And again, it's, you know, it's difficult to remember, but, but the Xbox was really, you know, in those very early days, was just a joke. It was the idea that Microsoft right. could presume to make a console. I mean, people were, people were so cynical, weren't they? They, they and, were. And obviously, but, they're, they're not now. Uh, uh, of course, um, you know, uh, the Xbox launched with a game called Halo, mm. and Halo yep. quickly started to silence people, and rightfully so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Xbox, yep. to me, the Xbox was... I, I was skepticism around the Xbox was certainly justified because Microsoft, you know, was known for dabbling in, in things and not necessarily following through. Uh, but the Xbox was really impressive from the beginning um, with games like Halo and um, and then games like Panzer Dragon Orta, like really sort of diversified its uh, like game library for at least for someone like me yes even though, uh, I, you know, ironically, it's still a game about shooting stuff just like Halo is. But um, it's a really different feeling game about shooting stuff. Yes. Um, for whatever that is worth. Yeah. And and at the time, certainly it was worth a lot to me. It makes you think while you shoot the yes. stuff. Um, so uh, tell me about how you came to, to leave um, GameSpot and, and join. Uh, did you join EA? Is that right? To work on Command & Conquer? Yeah, that was, um, you know, that that was a number of years after after the fact. Uh, that, that was right at the beginning of 2007. Uh. You know, it was around... E3 of that time, E3, you know, it, it's still around, but it was a bigger deal than of once a year. It was in May of uh, those years. There'd be a big event where all the major game companies show up and show off what they have in store. And there was a certain E3 where uh, Bioshock was first shown, uh, the the original Assassin's Creed was first shown, and these games. Wow, I was I was so I was so enthralled by what I saw of those games and what was the promise of those games. And it was, I had been working at GameSpot, you know, for, for like nine years or so at that time. And, and, uh-huh. and those games were, were like really kind of instilled in me that they reminded me how desperately I wanted to work, I had wanted to work on games at a certain point. And so I, I felt like around this time of a generational shift, as in new consoles and stuff were about to come out, Maybe this was a time when I, I I just started thinking maybe I could try and get into game development now. Like maybe now is a chance for me. Um, although my experience at GameSpot wasn't exactly what game studios would be looking for, maybe it would be relevant. I certainly you know had played a lot of games, and and the more the more important thing to me was as a website. GameSpot was like a software product, uh, quote unquote. I had been working with engineers and graphic designers and marketing teams, um, and and uh-huh. there there must be some similarity, I thought, between that experience and what w- would be needed at a at a game studio. I I didn't really know anyone in the industry. It was really important to me 
to keep our editorial department insulated. Like I was reviewing a lot of games, so I didn't have a lot of personal connections at other game studios. So I didn't really know where to start. <laughs> a friend of mine uh, who was a former colleague who had moved on to go work at a game studio himself, he he knew of my he knew of my interests. Amira Jami, he was our previous editor in in years past, and so he had gone on to work at Electronic Arts. He worked on um, uh, Command and Conquer Generals, and then the Battle for Middle Earth real time strategy games. And he mentioned to me that they had a producer opening there, and he wondered if I was still interested in, and I was, and so I applied for that job and I got it. And that job took me to. I live in Northern California in the Bay Area. Uh, that studio was down in Los Angeles, so I ended up commuting. Oh wow! Uh, for that job, uh, for for like two. Well, by plane, uh, by plane or by car. Yeah, I would I would stay there for like two weeks uh, at a time. My daughter had just been born; she was like only about a year old. Oh, that's tough. Um, we didn't think it was going to drag out for that long, uh, but uh, but it did. But for me, it was like it was my shot um, to get to work on games yeah. finally. So yeah, Command and Conquer 3 Tiberium Wars uh, for the computer was the first game I got to work on okay. back in 2007. It's a, it's a couple of years before this that your fourth pick was released. Can you tell us about this? Yes. Yes. This, is, this game is Metal Gear Solid 3 Subsistence from 2005. This is the update to a game called Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater, uh, which launched in 2004. Subsistence is essentially just a, you could think of it as like a game of the year edition for Snake Eater. So Snake Eater is kind of the game that should be on this list, but Subsistence made some really meaningful improvements to how this game plays to where I, and it includes kind of all, it doesn't mess with the content of Snake Eater. So it's kind of the superior version um, but I do want to acknowledge that like a lot of the initial impact of Metal Gear Solid 3 was in the original release and it's more widely known as Snake Eater. I mean, the Metal Gear Solid series is one of those things that's just... Words fail me. It is so incredibly um, inventive and compelling in, in all the many things that it has done. <laughs> it's not for everyone, right? Like a lot of people, it's now widely known that these are games where you spend a lot of time watching them and listening to them and not just playing just them. To, I mean, everyone listening to this will know what this series is, but just quickly, these are stealth war themed games in which you play, you know, usually play as this character. Um, solid snake who has to infil infiltrate areas and so what you're alluding to there is you spend a lot of time crouching in bushes or hiding under trucks watching for the guards so you can evade their movements right well what i'm what i'm alluding to is you don't even do that you're you're actually watching cutscenes, so you're just passively oh. yeah so um <laughs> the, the, yes that the too. gameplay itself <laughs> is is quite uh, kind of deliberate in in the way that you mentioned but then i think particularly yeah metal gear solid 4 which is not the game on my list but i think just the ending of that game when you finish the final gameplay sequence it's like more than two hours of just like cuts 
it's like the entire length of a normal film is just the ending of that game to to put in perspective like how cutscene heavy those games can be yeah so the director Hideo Kojima is often accused of being a sort of wannabe film director which is a little unfair but there's certainly that aspect to his interest right yes is making films they have a very cinematic quality they have these like uh, intricately choreographed uh, cutscenes and and very kind of meandering sometimes complex stories but I love it um I for me it's incredibly idiosyncratic there's nothing like it yes you know technically formally maybe there should be like like if if someone ed- were to edit these games down uh, using kind of common practices they would lose their soul yeah. and metal mm-hmm. gear solid 3 it's it's kind of a prequel to the series so despite having a 3 in the name it works very well as like if you were to play one and only one metal gear game it's it's a very good choice for that and it has what i think many agree and uh and is is the best uh most interesting story in the series with with a absolutely incredible conclusion uh, that's that's extraordinarily memorable and what's always been interesting about metal gear solid is how it on the face of it it's this kind of spy thriller like a it looks like it's like a tom clancy kind of thing oh infiltrate this base but it gets so much weirder than that every single time without uh-huh. fail and metal gear solid 3 it actually part of what makes it so good is that it is a little bit more grounded than some of the other games, yeah. um, but it still right. has it still has its fair share of just absolutely strange stuff. There's one one of the encounters in the game you you face off against this legendary sniper called the End, who is a man who is apparently more than a hundred years old. He's the best sniper's ever lived, and and it becomes this incredible like open world sort of boss like like cat and mouse. A sniper battle against this other guy where you have to use all these different tools you know you have to try and find the reflection in his sight or use you know thermal vision all these ways of tracking this guy down to get a hit on him but as an example of the kind of zany stuff that goes in metal gear games this is a really tough fight what can happen is if you come back if you stop playing the game and come back to it like uh, i think two weeks later in this fight the end dies of old age um the fight is over and you walk up to him and he's freaking dead and then you get it's actually very mournful like the snake the character you're Mm. playing laments that he denied this legendary sniper his like final fight so you get this whole alternate story sequence but that the idea that you could just like wait out a boss and have him die of old age to me is one of those kind of classic examples of hideo kojima doing absolutely inventive kind of bonkers amazing stuff yeah. so that that's just one example but it's a it's a it's a fun one it's so funny like with the with phone games you often get notifications if you <laughs> if you stop playing yeah. saying you, you need to come back and play the game this is like the opposite of that is so passive aggressive yeah. it's like you didn't play for two weeks and we just killed the character i was just imagining the the notification yeah the end has died of old <laughs> yeah. age you can come back and play <laughs> yeah. continue your metal gear solid 3 experience yeah so um it's still that's a bit if you if you haven't played it and you're thinking about it it's it's a bit the, the game is loaded with stuff like this so it, you, you kind of can't even really spoil this game it has so many mm. uh kind of delightfully yeah. weird moments 
I mean, it's worth mentioning as well that most of this series takes place on military bases or, you know, big ships, things like that, whereas this is a game that is in the jungle, isn't it? And, well, you know, and large parts of it. And so it's much more, it's got a very different feel, you know, you're sort of hiding in, on, you know, hanging off branches. Yeah. And, and of course, the name Snake Eater comes because he has to, he has to, you know, forage, essentially, and subsistence as well. Yeah, he, right. There's all these, it, it actually did a lot of this kind of survival gameplay before before, before it was cool, I would say um, the survival games have uh, have become a, a, a kind of this flourishing genre on uh, on the computer at least, and it, it sort of explored this idea of having to you know bind your wounds and 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 eat to to remain you know to remain healthy and and all this kind of stuff. And the implementation of some of these systems is a little bit awkward, but the uh, fact that it's getting you to think about this of like you know you got you got shot you have to cauterize the wound and then use a suture kit and and all this kind of like having to deal with the actual rigors that your character is going through uh. was was very interesting and it similar to tying back to something like Panzer Dragoon Orta you know it made it made you think in in the context of a action oriented and ultimately like fairly violent game is definitely getting you to to consider the the things that you were doing and the decisions you were making and all this sort of stuff. And I, uh, I've just games like this, uh, have made me really, I appreciate when, when games, uh, are, are thoughtful in this way. So t- tell me about how in 2010 you came to join super giant. Yes. Um, so, when I joined EA to to rewind slightly, um, some of the you know I, I think on on the very first day I started, my mentioned my former colleague Amira Jami. He he introduced he was a, a a senior producer on the team at the time. He introduced me around, and a couple of the people I met were uh, Amir Rao, who was a young game designer on on the design team doing campaign missions, and uh, Gavin Simon, who was a young uh, AI engineer uh, slash technical designer who had actually been working at EA for years despite his uh his youth uh or he he came in through uh through Westwood cuz Command and Conquer was originally uh created by a company called Westwood Studios that EA acquired. Uh-huh. So Gavin and Amir were talented folks on that team that I became friends with among others and so we worked together on Command and Conquer 3 and then on Red Alert 3 and a Red Alert 3 expansion pack over the next uh, two and a half years or so. And it was um, uh-huh. it was around that, you know, 2008, 2009, that we were starting to see this, this resurgence of, uh, resurgence may not be the right word, but these kind of prominent independent game launches. There were games, it was a specific handful that really stood out. There was Plants vs. Zombies. There was a game called World of Goo. There was Braid. And there was Castle Crashers. So these are four really different games. Uh-huh. What they shared in common were two things. They were extremely good in their own right. And they were made by very small teams, you know, maybe three to eight or something like that people. Um, and we were, you know, meanwhile, we were working at a team that ballooned past 130 or so, which was very large at the time. That's not even big uh, by today's standards. And so it was this kind of paradoxical thing of how is it that these games made by so few people are so good. And we realized it's not a paradox at all. It's like, it's like why they're good. They feel very personal. And, and these small groups just 
worked with their within their means and and made the game that they wanted to make kind of without without it getting filtered through too many different uh, perspectives or or kind of priorities and uh, the 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 fact that digital distribution was becoming a big deal at the time with things like uh, Xbox Live Arcade meant that these games could find an audience they didn't have to be you know released on DVDs in Walmart or whatever they could be sold digitally uh, so that's when we started uh, thinking about what what would we make if we if we could do it ourselves? And one day, uh, Gavin and Amir dropped everything and moved to Amir's dad's vacated house in San Jose and started working on uh, on Bastion. And I um, and I was uh, able to join them um, in the following year. As mentioned, I was still kind of commuting to Los Angeles, uh, and the idea of going from that situation directly into like a startup company situation in San Jose, which is like an hour and a half away from where I live here, um, was just, I, I was just too much for me, but we were able to make it work late. I actually worked it uh, for a year, um, in between, but, um, we got back to talking and I was able to kind of reunite with them. Uh, so that's the, that's the long and the short of it. And Bastion was, yeah, the first game I got to work on in, in my current capacity, you know, doing, finally getting to design levels and write stories, write the narrative uh, for the game and and stuff, the kind of stuff that I always mm. dreamed of doing. Back when you're a teenager, when I was a little kid, I finally got to do it because my because my friends, you know, gave me a chance to do it. Basically, amazing. Yeah, and Bastion is a wonderful, wonderful game as well. Thank you. So let's uh, let's come to your final choice then, which came out, um, I think, five years after Bastion, t- 2015. Can you tell us about it? Yes, uh, this game is Bloodborne from From Software, creators of Kingsfield. One of the other things, you know, I thought about for this list is how do I constrain this list? I wanted to constrain it by including games that I can't, I can't easily play somewhere else. Like there are so many of my favorite classics growing up, like they are available on, on Steam or on other, you know, mini consoles and stuff like that. But the only place to play Bloodborne is on the PlayStation 4. And it's hard to pick like the one best uh, re- from software game in recent years uh, because they've just been making these uniquely rich and dense and interesting games. And I'm so happy for their success in, in recent years because mm-hmm. they've been around for so long. But Bloodborne is, you know, it took the kind of the, the formula that they had already defined and, and made popular with Demon Souls and Dark Souls and put it in this gothic horror, actually a cosmic horror kind of setting with with vampires and werewolves and stakes through you know steak launchers uh, as in steak the thing that kills vampires not a side of beef um, that would be weird 
Um, and <laughs> the the whole atmosphere of Bloodborne, the design of the different locations and enemies, it's a huge game. It's it's filled with secrets. It's filled with these weird, horrible, amazing looking creatures and and really inventive kind of weapon designs and everything. So the world of Bloodborne is really uh, spectacular and they've never made anything like it kind of before or after. So it's one, you know, you talk to any dyed-in-the-wool from software fan and if you ask them what their favorite game is, there's a good chance that Bloodborne will be up there for them. But it could be anything. It could be Elden Ring or Sekiro or Dark Souls. Um, but Bloodborne is, is, since it is less widely available than games like Dark Souls or Elden Ring or even Sekiro for that matter, it's the one that jumped out to me. I really, for me, my own experience of Bloodborne was like, I liked it even more than Demon Souls and Dark Souls, which I, I was shocked by because I really enjoyed those games. And I thought that, you know, oh, it's more of the same. It's kind of a, you know, really similar gameplay, maybe even a bit of a reskin, but it, it just takes on its own distinct identity uh, quite quickly. Yeah, uh, does, and, yeah. and really um, just remains very vividly memorable to me having played mm. it those years ago. Yeah, and I suppose all their other games are sit within the fantasy tradition and this really is apart from that, you know, being a, a gothic game. And also it has a you know, in uh, Demon's Souls and Dark Souls there's you can if you want to play as a defensive player and you can sort of wander around the world hiding behind a shield, you can do that. Whereas in Bloodborne it forces you really to to be aggressive doesn't it it's much more like a fighting game in some yeah ways. the part where it played even faster i think i think did end up being a reason that i really liked it yeah there in in as you alluded to in you know in dark souls you could be a big knight with a big tower shield or something like that and in bloodborne they're like you could have a shotgun but really the shotgun is your shield and if <laughs> yeah. that doesn't make any sense well welcome to bloodborne <laughs> you you shoot people in order to defend and that uh, you know these are highly esoteric i i love how popular these games are despite how incredibly kind of esoteric they are mm, yeah. they're really dense and and difficult to get into and and extraordinarily difficult they're they're really challenging right bloodborne was really yeah. hard but um yeah bloodborne is a lot definitely <laughs> i went but i replayed it recently and it's um i mean like you say dense is the is the right word but but so memorable yeah yeah and it, you know like some of their other games it has the thing where you can uh, you can summon you know a cooperative you can summon someone to help you through some of these like really difficult situations and everything but i think to the again the like the 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 enemy designs some of these characters that you fight against and they were just so the 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 visual design the animation the audio the music like the the experience of being in bloodborne is really second to none and they use their the difficulty is not the point the difficulty is like you you just get, you keep reaching these places that it feels like you shouldn't be there how is it possible that you made it this far? And like the difficulty is a means to an end with that. And like the experience of overcoming the challenges of, of a game like Bloodborne is really only from software, I think, kind of mm. is able to create that particular type of experience. And every one of those games I play, I feel like I can't do it again. But yes. I've been able to I've been able to get through yeah, I got through that and I, I don't know how I got through Bloodborne, but I somehow did, and it was really, really worth it. 
Well, Greg, thank you so much for your choices and for sharing your your story with us as well. It's been really wonderful. Just before you you go, um, Hades is you know just for many people, I think one of their favourite games of of recent years. And I know you're working on Hades two. What's that? What's the experience like? This is the first time you've done that. Worked on a sequel to one to something you've made that's you know almost universally lauded and popular. Are you finding that? Um, difficult uh for you know for sure uh i game development has never gotten easier for me i think um uh, but that challenge i think similar to these from software games the 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 challenge of it is part of what makes it compelling and part of what makes it infinitely interesting to me yeah we've never made a sequel before and that's really partly out of fear and respect for what it takes to make a sequel that's worthwhile. Just about every game on this list of mine is, happens to be a sequel. For for us, like a question that we've thought about a lot over the years is like, how do you make a sequel that can recapture the sense of surprise and delight that that made the previous game stand out? Because it's hard for sequels to do that. Players go in knowing more of what to expect. But I do think of some of these games that have been able to do it and and kind of were able to impress me stick with me at least as much if not more than their predecessors so we we felt the idea of trying to achieve something like that was was uh, frightening to us and and that fear and excitement has always driven our decisions of which uh, project to pursue and of course the the greek myth uh, premise we we knew all of our games we felt were potentially open to to continuation but hades in particular there there were just so many characters from greek myth yes. that we were so excited about that that we that just didn't fit in to the story of the original game but even while working on the original game we felt like uh, there was an opportunity to do more in this world if players liked the world and if we were excited to keep you know creating stories in that world and both of those uh, variables came to pass and and so and yeah and so here we are we're, we're really really happy with how with the response to what we've shown of it so far, but we have a lot left to, to build. So we, we have to kind of keep doing our thing and of course, and getting yeah. it ready. But we, we feel like we're, we're really excited about where, where it's all going. Well, you know, take your time. We're, we're all on your side and we can't wait to, thank you to play it when it's, when it's ready. So, um, yeah, thank you again, Greg. It's been great to chat. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you so much to my guest, Greg Kasavin. Uh, that is not Kasavin or Kasavin, it's Greg Kasavin. We have all learned that now. Just so good to hear him talk about these wonderful games, really fantastic picks. And uh, I loved uh, Greg's way of talking about them. Uh, obviously, he was a professional uh, journalist covering games for a long time. And that comes through, I think, in the deep way that he thinks about games. And I also noticed uh, while listening back to to our chat just how he prizes interesting ways of telling stories as well through each of those games um, and uh, yeah they all have interesting narrative tricks and ways of communicating their story to players uh, not only through cutscenes but also through mechanics 
We did, we didn't talk too much about uh, Greg's work uh, at Supergiant Games, but if you've listened to the My Perfect Console episode with Eric Woolpaw, the writer of Portal, he name checks Greg and describes him as the best narrative designer working in video games today and if you go and play Supergiant's games Bastion and of course most recently Hades um, I think you can see why Eric has reached that conclusion these are these are very fine video games but they also have just fantastic world building scripting dialogue that never feels sort of uh, heavy-handed or enthralled to cinema it feels like its own thing it feels y- unique to video games and yet also draws upon all these other traditions in really wonderful ways i remember actually at christmas this is just a few months ago in the uk i think it was one of the christmas editions of university challenge and one of the rounds that came up was based around super giant games and each of the answers was a different game and uh you had uh, Jeremy Paxman describing each of the super giant games and uh, there was I think a member on one of the teams uh, who who happened to know all of the answers so yeah I think that's a pretty sure sign that you've made it in the culture when your titles make it onto a program as uh, as distinguished as University Challenge anyway if you haven't played Hades you should go and do that immediately it's a stunning game This was another one of those episodes that I recorded quite early in the year before I was asking my guests to supply their console with a brand's name. Uh, But I have gone back to Greg and emailed him and asked if he could supply us with with a, uh, a, a name which we can plaster on his console. And he wrote, Hi Simon, thank you for the note. I would name my mini console the Neo 5. It is a simple name to highlight the specific number of games. And he also said, because uh, Greg, like me, is a fan of the Neo Geo. uh, In fact, you know that little harp interstitial that plays midway through all of the episodes? That is the loading uh, music from the Neo Geo system, the AES and the MVS, if you didn't know that. Uh, Obviously, sort of my spin on it, but uh, that's where that comes from. He wrote, uh, Greg wrote, we didn't get to talking about Neo Geo stuff much, though Neo in the context of consoles has a certain exciting but nostalgic feeling for me and maybe for others. Yeah, that is certainly true for me as well. Uh, So yeah, the Neo 5, there we have it. So yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you again for listening this far into the podcast. You can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. Easy to remember email. Thank you to those of you who have been writing in with your lovely words of encouragement and uh, suggestions for guests and uh, feedback on the podcast. It's very much appreciated. If you do have a spare minute, please do do hop on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a tap a little review out if you can. It does help other people to find the podcast Uh, and if you want to support what i'm doing here financially then you can go to acast plus just type into google acast plus my perfect console and when you get there you can pay just three pounds a month to get your episodes 24 hours before the public you'll get your own feed and also ad free so you know a great way to support what i'm trying to build here as well um Okay, it only remains for me to say that I will be back again next week with one more guest. 
their five games and one more perfect console. Until then, have a great week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.